Okay. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I swear a lot, so I'll have to make sure I don't swear too much. Hi, my name is Kimberly Davis, and I am a wealth manager. I'm a managing director and partner at the Bonson Group. We are a wealth management firm with offices in Newport Beach, California, and New York City. And I am also the founder and creator of The Fiscal Feminist, which is a platform for women to become more engaged with their finances. I'm trying to empower each and every one of y'all to get out there Take hold of your finances. Don't let anyone else control your life and to be CEO of your life. So that's pretty much who I am uh, and what I'm currently doing. Well, thank you, Katie, for having me. I'm super excited. I've listened to some of your podcasts. They're awesome and I love what you're doing. Well, so this is a really big question, right? Because it encompasses a lot of kind of tactical things and also psychological things, right? Because our lives are full, you know, are these tapestries of many personal relationships that often become legal. And many times we let emotions and our feelings get involved in how we approach those relationships, which can actually have an effect on our financial uh, situation either during the journey of that relationship or when that relationship ends. And in a perfect world, like we don't wanna think about that, we just wanna be in the moment, but honestly, it's super, super important. Uh, I've just written a book called The, financial, uh, the Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women. I talk about all things financial that women need to strategize about, but I have a whole chapter devoted to this. Um, and it's about what to do to protect yourself in relationships so that later on in life or down the road, you know, you don't really have something that causes so much turmoil that you can't even understand where you're at in your life. And it causes you in a lot of stress and health problems and everything else that comes with that. So I always say to people, um, you have to protect yourself in these relationships, especially if you're going to live with somebody or you're going to marry somebody, um, you know, I think our love narrative has to change. It, don't, it doesn't mean that you don't love somebody because you want to talk about money or you want to talk about the future and possible things that can happen. You know, shit happens in life. That's just the way it is. I wish I could tell everybody that. It's not true, but you know, it happened to me. Um, I was a lawyer and then I was an investment banker. I was married for 23 years. I have three children, um, probably your age. They're in their 30s. Uh, well, two are in their 20s, one's in their 30s. But um, that being said, I never expected what happened to me to happen. If I had done what I'm telling everyone else to do, it would have been way better. Um, so that's what motivates me to do this. So let's be, the first thing I would say to everybody is, you must be your best advocate. You have to talk about these things. You cannot let other people kind of sway you not to do that. It doesn't mean you're a bad person and it doesn't mean that you're not someone who could be terribly in love with somebody. It just means that you're sensible and you're protecting yourself down the line. So you need to have a roadmap for all these relationships. 
So I would say you want to money proof your relationships from the get go. So what does that mean? That means have a talk and find out what exactly the other person currently has going on. What are their debts? What mortgages, uh, what credit card debt do they have? Um, what uh, other obligations do they have for supporting other people, whether it's child support, alimony, maybe they have to uh, care for an older, an elder parent. Um, there could be other obligations that you haven't really discussed with this person and you want to understand their full picture. Have they had bankruptcies? Are they in the middle of a bankruptcy? Uh, so that's the first thing. You also want to understand what their financial assets are. So, you know, be transparent about yourself and ask them the same questions. Once you have a clear picture of where each of you are before whatever it is you're going to do, you're about to do, um, you also need to have a conversation that, you know what, you're both stakeholders. And that goes through the course of the relationship, right? Say I'm going to stay home and be a caregiver and you might be the primary breadwinner. Well, that doesn't give you the right to dominate all the financial decisions. That is just not cool at all. And so we need to talk about that from the get-go, right? Not when after you had the kid or you're caring for some, you know, a child. You need to talk about that at the beginning so that everyone's on the same page about this. So, you know, both people need to have a stay. Both people are stakeholders. The other thing is don't keep secrets. When people keep secrets in relationships, this is where the legally binding will get complicated down the road when the legal part starts to play in if there's a split, right? Because people will be like, oh, wow, uh, I didn't know that, or I didn't read the tax return that I signed that, you know, had a whole bunch of secrets in it that I didn't know what the hell was going on. So you need to make sure that you don't keep secrets and you keep an eye out for each other to make sure the other person isn't keeping secrets. Um, and then I, the other thing I would suggest, and I'm, I'm going to get into other things that are more tactical, but on a more kind of global basis is if you are in a relationship with somebody and uh, there are financial elements to that, i.e. you're marrying them or you're living with them, then you need to have a budget. And that's one way for transparency to manifest itself, to reveal itself, right? Because you're going to sit down and you're going to have realistic goals, right? You cannot have pie in the sky bullshit, okay? This is the time to get real with each other. What do you both want to do? What can you really afford? Who's the spender? Who's the saver? And how are you going to set that, all of those uh, things together into a realistic budget that you can both follow and monitor and keep checking in with? And that will keep you on course to A, being more transparent and to getting used to having conversations about money and about finances and about financial obligations that will come down the road. And then I would say, when you do get involved with another human being in a legal binding relationship, always try to maintain your autonomy in certain ways. You don't have to throw everything in together. Um, it's okay to have autonomy. You can still be a good wife, a good mom, uh, really, you know, a sex pistol, all that good stuff, attractive, and still have autonomy with your money. That, that's a whole other episode. How to be sexy and still care about your money. Uh, and, you know, I, I digress a little bit because um, back in the 80s, I graduated from law school in 1983. And um, so I started my job uh, as a lawyer in New York City. And I was the only person in my first entering class. And then as time went on, you know, I, I got married and all that stuff. But there was that commercial 
back in the day called the Anjali commercial. And it was this really sexy woman who finally was in the workforce because it was the 80s and everybody was working and they thought they could do it all. And it was like, I can bring home the bacon fried up in a pan and never let you forget you're a man because I'm a woman, an Anjali woman. And so then she'd have a suit on at the beginning of the commercial and then morph into a negligee at the end of the commercial. So these are the things that are instilled in our heads about how we have to do it all. Don't believe that. That was disinformation. Um, I digress, but I, I mean, you do have to maintain autonomy. It doesn't mean you're any less of anything. So how are you going to do that? So there. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that you can do before, right? Before you get married. So one thing I would say to everybody um, who works, and a lot of people say, well, I'm young, I'm not making that much money. I don't care. These things, you're going to continue to grow throughout your life. So this is setting, it's laying your infrastructure, right? So the first thing you should do, um, and I think everyone should consider, is to have their own trust. And that will be a separate property trust if that is funded by your earnings, you have property that maybe you inherited or things that you own prior to cohabiting or marrying somebody. They are, you know, if you're, it's, they're usually fairly straightforward, especially for younger people, so it won't be that expensive to, to set up, but it's a way of ring fencing all of your property and uh, money investments into a trust. And you can also pick who you're going to leave it to so you can set up your own beneficiaries with that. But it's a way of ring fencing your separate property before you get into a marriage because it is in something that is not commingled. It's separately yours. You can always set up a joint trust with a spouse later on. That won't affect that. But that property will always be ring fenced as your separate property. Well, it's it's kind of like in conjunction. So in a prenup, you can um, you know there's so, uh, several things that you can do in a prenup. So the point of the prenup is to kind of, while everyone is still getting along, is to be able to have a rational discussion about how you're going to split up the property and, you know, how things are going to be divided down the way. So it's always better to have these discussions when everybody isn't heightened in their emotion and also um, just something uh, to keep aware of is when you start going into a divorce proceeding, uh, it's a highly documented proceeding. And people will, once the divorce begins, often not be forthcoming with documentation. 
So that's why a prenup helps to make sure that those things don't happen later down the line that could cause for a lot of um, fogginess and hidden assets and things to that nature. But I would say there are two things you can do. One is if you're going to live with somebody long term and not get married, you should have a cohabitation agreement. Um, that's something different from a prenup. It can morph into a prenup if you ultimately do get married. But people who live together have different rights than people who are married. And so uh, before we even go to the prenup, I would say in a cohabitation agreement, you should really spell out who owns what, how things will get distri be distributed if you do decide to move out and not be together. Say if you decide to buy assets together, how is that going to be split down the line? Like if you buy a house with somebody and you're not married and one person puts a mortgage uh, down payment down and the other person is paying the mortgage, how's that going to work out? Because it may work out that nobody's going to move out because they've never discussed this and they don't exactly know how to split it up. So also, you know, I would not advise anyone to commingle assets if they're cohabiting or to have joint credit cards. But the cohabitation is uh, agreement is like a precursor to the prenup. Now, if you're going to go get married um, before you take that leap, I would have a crystal clear conversation with your future spouse. My daughter, who's 31, she's getting married in October and she is in the middle of now she's a lawyer, but she's negotiating her prenup right now. And, and, you know, also I, as her mother in my trust, when I die, three trusts pop up for each of my kids. But one of the conditions in my trust is if they want to get my inheritance, if they are married, if they don't have a prenup or a postnup, they can't get the money. Uh, and so that's my way of ensuring that everybody does what I think is important or they don't have to get my money. That's fine. I could donate it to charity. Uh, exactly. That's what being a mom gives you that option sometimes. So, 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 so what you're going to do in this prenup is you're going to a delineate what separate property, what if, what do you already have that separate property that's in your separate property trust? So the separate property trust just makes it easier to delineate it, right? Hey, all my stuff sitting here in this trust, that's mine. It will never come into the marital corpus. So that stays outside this whole discussion. Um, then it will, if there is the potential for alimony, which I'm not a big fan of alimony because people can be deadbeats and not pay it, but um, you cannot address alimony in a postnup. It will not be enforceable. So you can only address it in a prenup. So it should be addressed in some fashion um, in the prenup. And then the reason, another reason you want to do this is if you go through mediation or you end up having a litigated divorce where a judge decides, then you're in the hands of some human being that doesn't even know your life and they're deciding how things are getting split up. So people will say, well, you know, there's equitable distribution states and community property states. Everything kind of gets split down the middle. But that is a fallacy, okay? Splitting stuff down the middle is often not the fairest and most equitable way of distributing property. And that is especially true for someone who stays at home to be a caregiver. Now, 75% of caregiving in this country is done by women, even if they are breadwinners, even if they are primary breadwinners. I know not why, but that is how it goes. And all of this is something that I think has been really neglected in the divorce uh, separation kind of negotiations. And lawyers are not completely equipped to deal with this. 
Uh, you can get a certified divorce financial analyst. That's I have that designation. They're very good at understanding uh, tax mitigation and tax consequences and also being able to run actual cash flows to show you where you might be under certain circumstances. But my thing is, and something I've been banging the drum about and talking to uh, divorce and family lawyers about is, I would like to see a formula for people who stay at home that make that choice. I'm gonna stay at home with my kids. I did it, I did it myself. That's why I'm so passionate about it. I not only stayed at home for, oh yeah, right. I mean, honestly, when I used to be an IP, <laughs> right, when I was an IPO lawyer, uh, back in the day, I used to pull all-nighters all the time, and I thought I was working hard. When I had three kids two years apart, uh, yeah, I would have gone back to practice law at any minute because I could go get my nails done, I could take a shower, wash my hair, do normal things, right? You know, kids are like a game changer, and they're not a one and done. Like, they stay in your life forever. So once you have them, never go away. Um, and I love my kids, but, you know, it's, you know, I, right, like, hey, I'm, I'm six, in my early 60s, my parents are in their 90s, and I'm still bugging them. So, <laughs> so one thing I do want to talk about, though, is this stay-at-home mom thing is, and I also want to talk a little bit uh, about some other things that are kind of baked into the system, but aren't that effective. But when a person decides to stay at home or be part-time, and they do it for a number of years, and maybe they end up suffering a gray divorce like I did in my early 50s, there could be a long period of time when you were either kind of in it, but not really in it in the professional world, and a lot of things happen. A, you've lost a lot of professional development. B, you have no longer contributed to your 401k or your social security over a long number of years. Uh-huh. Um, yes, um, they could. There's a thing called um, a quadro, which is a qualified domestic court order. Um, but there's a couple of things I want to talk about on that score. So one, you can always get the spousal benefit of your spouse, even in divorce, if you are married for 10 years and you don't get remarried again. Even if that spouse, your ex-spouse gets married 15 more times, you can still get their spousal benefit. But the spousal benefit is half of what their benefit is. So even if you are getting that, if you had stayed in the workforce and were making a lot of money, um, you would probably end up having a greater social security benefit. So you do have that. So that, that's one thing. Also, when you're married, you could get what they call a spousal IRA. If, you're, if your um, spouse is working, then you can contribute to an IRA even though you're not technically working and usually you have to be an earner. Um, and so you can, but that's only 6,000 a year. So it's not gonna be a game changer. Now, in a divorce proceeding, you can get what's called a quadro, like I said. That's a separate order and a separate thing that will happen usually after the decree has been issued, then you go for the quadro. Not all quadros, though, are created equally. A lot of it depends on the plan administrator of the 401k of the spouse as to how, how much can be distributed and 
how that all works. Now, quadros are beneficial because for a non-working spouse, it can provide them with a retirement nest egg, um, and it's not a taxable event. So, you know, you don't get a 10% penalty for that occurring. If it happens before 59 and a half, you don't have to pay taxes, and so it's a distribution. So there is that possibility, but um, going back to the stay-at-home mom, I mean, that may not be enough, in my opinion, to compensate someone who's really taken the hit on a lot of things. Because if you haven't been working for 15 years, you're gonna have a transition to get back in the workforce. And this could be long, or it may not be at all. I, I don't know, you know, it's, there's, and then there's still, exactly. Exactly. And, and the thing is, women live longer now. They live five years longer than men. And generally, you know, so the thing is, if you have a gray divorce, like when I got, um, I had moved back from England. And so I hadn't lived in this country in a while. I'm trying to get a job, which I ultimately did at, Jake, uh, at Morgan Stanley. But, you know, not many people were clamoring to hire a 54 year old woman. Not to, not to mention there's gender, there's still gender pay inequity, right? I know for a fact when I got hired at Morgan Stanley, and I'm saying that straight up, um, I got paid less than some of the other people that were that were hired the same day I was, uh, and I know that for a fact. So I was really penalized, and it took me a lot of hard work and the universe to interfere, and the fact that I had a good resume from my prior life to be able to get back to some sort of living arrangement that was kind of on the same standard. but. I think what should happen um, and what should be put in a prenup is there should be a formula that A, um, values what, if you were to contribute the max contribution on your 401k throughout the entire time that you are not in the workforce, what is that number? You are going to be performing invisible labor, i.e. childcare, housework, whatever. That is worth something. If you were to pay someone to do that, what is that amount? And what would that be equivalent to if you were a paid employee within the home doing that? Then I would say we have to incorporate some kind of value into the transition to re-enter the workforce. Maybe you need further education. Maybe you need to get your skill set sorted out. I don't know. And then I think there should be an inflator put on that for the number of years that you've been outside the workforce. That's going to come up with a number. That's your base case. At least you know if all else goes awry, you're, there is a formula in there that will guide the decision or decide the calculation of what it is you should be getting as opposed to a judge saying, hey, we're going to split it down the middle. Well, splitting it down the middle often isn't equitable and many women want to keep the family home because they have the kids and they don't want to disrupt everybody, but that's also often not to their economic benefit because the family home has property taxes, insurance, maintenance and their settlement is probably not going to be enough money unless you know there's a large settlement to care for to carry that expense as well as all the other expenses that they're going to have sitting you know at their feet and they're probably going to end up having to sell that house so i like the idea of beefing up the prenup about this particular issue
and it doesn't preclude um, you getting more right through the, the process, but it just at least says this is the, the basic um, valuation of what I'm doing. It's valuable. It's not something that gets swept to the side during a divorce proceeding. Because I know during my divorce proceeding, when the fact that I moved to England and pretty much put my whole career on hold for 14 years, um, and I was a stay-at-home mom for 10 years, None of that was calculated into any of this. It, you know, it was kind of like, okay, well, you know, you lived your life. This guy lived his life. You have the three kids, and we're going to split this. But I still had three kids that were in school, one that was in university. Um, it was, you know, it was it was very unpleasant. Um, so if we had had that discussion before, also it just is a discussion about the fact that you know, when you're staying at home, you're not living off the fat of the land, right? You're doing a job. You're bringing up the children. I mean, women, unfortunately or fortunately, because being a mom is very fulfilling, but, you know, we're expected to work like we don't have children and to be moms like we don't work. That's not possible. And what we do is valuable for society because that's how society grows and prospers by having uh, children in it. But, you know, if people are going to be penalized for having children and aren't going to get, you know, down the road what they need to have to live an appropriate lifestyle in retirement, well, uh, then I would say people aren't going to want to have children anymore. It is. Yeah, so debt and credit are very tricky issues, um, and they can't really be addressed uh, directly in an agreement before marriage. Um, it really depends on what kind of what state you live in, to be honest. So if you are uh, in a community property state, there's one set of rules. If you're in an equitable distribution, there's another set of rules. So in equitable distribution states, um, now, just so we, uh, the community property states are Arizona, California, Texas, New Mexico, Wisconsin, Alaska, but just check to see if you're a community property state. So in equitable distribution states, you can keep your credit separate, okay? You can have credit cards that are in your own name. I would highly recommend not only that you have a credit card in your own name and try to keep your credit separate, because the minute you have a joint credit card or you co-sign or a guarantor, then you're commingling your debt, right? So I am a big proponent of a have separate credit if you're you know if you in an equitable distribution state and also in a community property state. But you, there are other consequences which I'll tell you about in a minute there. Um, and then um, make sure that you try to keep your credit as separate as you can. Now obviously you may buy a house together or whatever, and so then you're going to see some commingling going on there. 
My only thing is I can say to you is if you are in an equitable distribution state and you do have credit cards that are co-credit co cards, a judge will decide in the divorce uh, decree or proceeding who they think is best able to pay off certain debts and will assign those debts to the people. But my advice to everybody is to always be looking at their credit report, look, looking at their credit score, because what your partner is doing can affect your credit score and can affect your report. So I would, I'm a big proponent of people, Credit Karma, Experian, whatever it is, review those accounts every month and make sure you set up alerts so that you know if there's somebody looking to get a loan or something that might affect you. And I, and on that note, and I'll talk about community property in a minute, but um, I would also say with respect to bank accounts, um, I would always try to keep a separate bank account. Uh, it doesn't prevent you from commingling bank accounts with your spouse, but um, I would always try to have some separate funding for yourself. It's just in your name only, maybe at a separate bank. Um, now you can, have separate property completely and decide the two of you that you're going to have a commingled account and you just take money from your say so say you work your money's deposited into your bank account and same for your spouse then you can pick an amount of money that you're going to commingle in a joint account and that will be the only commingled marital property so that's okay to do that that's in my mind recommended um, now with respect to debt in a community property state in a community property state, whether it's your debt or your spouse's debt, the court, the state believes that you are going to benefit from that other person's debt. So they are going to attribute it to you whether you did it or you didn't do it. So it's particularly important in community property states to 100% be looking at that credit report constantly um, because, you know, every month get your alerts set up because it just doesn't matter um they are gonna they're gonna attribute it to both of you so say you guys have an agreement like i'm gonna pay the visa card and i'm gonna you're gonna pay the mastercard and say one of you doesn't follow through well guess what in a community property state they're gonna come after the person who wasn't responsible for paying it that happened to me and um i was like yeah but it wasn't my responsibility and they're like uh we don't care if you don't pay it it's going to be on your it's going to be delinquency on your credit report so this is a real because a lot of women uh and maybe men but a lot of women are not going to have credit because they haven't had their own credit cards or they haven't had their own autonomous money throughout the marriage they haven't done any of these steps they get out of the divorce they have no credit they can't even go buy a car i mean it takes them a long time to reestablish their credit so if their credit is already damaged by what a partner is doing this is very, very long lasting to them. It can have very negative effects. Um, and again, it's usually gonna happen the older you get because you've been following this kind of lifestyle for a long time. So this is a, a very tricky area and you gotta keep your eye on the ball on this because you really can't, uh, you can't really put it in an agreement and have it be enforceable. So, oh no, <laughs> keep them coming.
Well, again, you know, obviously it depends where you live because New York City is going to be one number and, you know, somewhere in the middle of Arkansas is probably going to be another number. But there's a variety of ways that you can do it. Um, the best optimal scenario for a prenup is for one person to have a lawyer who prepares it and for the other person to have a lawyer who reviews it. That way, it is, that is the most enforceable agreement. If only, if both people don't have a lawyer, then the court may feel that one person was somehow coerced into signing it and didn't really have a, a good review of it. Now, you can have a do-it-yourself one, but those are can be not as enforceable sometimes because the court wants to know that there's clarity and every, everybody understood what they were signing up for. But, you know, I'd say that's better than nothing. But I think prenups can range uh, depending, I think it's the simplest of prenups, um, I would say would be anywhere in the kind of two grand. Uh, maybe in New York, you're kind of going to four grand, but it's just in that realm. But look at it as an upfront cost, right? Even if it were, if you had a more complicated situation and it was five or $6,000, that money is going to bear the fruit of thousands and thousands of dollars later on in your life that will really cause, uh, will prevent you from really having to do some unpleasant things to just stay afloat when you're at a low point in your life emotionally, when you're mourning the death of a, a marriage or a breakup, all of those things, you know, take away from our ability to like go out in the world and kind of reestablish ourselves because we, it takes time to get over it, you know, uh, there's that, exactly, and um, I would say talk to a couple of different lawyers, interview them just like you would anybody else. Um, and make sure that you're all on the same page and the person is competent and has a good track record. But, you know, if push comes to shove, especially in cohabitation, you can also do a do-it-yourself one. They have, you know, all kinds of resources online. But legal representation gives you the gravitas for enforceability. Well, and there's one other thing I, I would like to mention really quickly, and that's hidden hidden assets. Um, I would also say, and again, not so much in a prenup or a postnup, but if there is a business in before, well, maybe it's a second marriage, you should address a company or a firm or something that you is a family business, because these are easy ways for people to hide assets in a divorce, and a lot of times. Think companies or businesses that look profitable before the divorce all of a sudden become not profitable when you're in the middle of a divorce and then people don't want to pr produce documentation so you have to subpoena it so again all conversations um, if your spouse or has a family business um, and you're gonna live your life off the proceeds of that try to understand that as, as, as well as you can and in addition to reviewing your credit report I would highly recommend all tax returns you should review and look at closely all the schedules the schedules have all the assets on them and that's a good place to hide assets make sure you review every tax return when you're married and or you're filing a joint tax return before you sign it <laughs> yeah. 
you know, it's just one of those things. I've had people not uh, look at it. And I had a woman call me up one day and say, all the money in my checking account is gone. And you know why? Because her, hu her husband, who she was separated from, had been defrauding the IRS and they can guard, they can just grab the money right out of your bank account. And she, she had to file, there's a form you can file to try to protest it, but she didn't have any money for a while. And he was at, uh, MIA, couldn't find the guy anywhere. Hell no. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, if people read my book, the whole thing uh, revolves around this thing called the email. And when I got that email, and that was after I got divorced, but it was still part of my divorce, my whole life changed and really became a nightmare. So that's why I, in 1987, when I married my first husband and we were married for, like I said, 23, 24 years, no one talked about prenups. Like, this was not something anyone ever spoke about. And I was also, you know, like, oh my God, you know, this is going to be forever. And I wish it had been, um, but it wasn't. And it, and it is what it is. So if I had known all this other stuff, we would actually have gotten on better through the divorce than we did because we were both in such a heightened state of anger that we were just yelling and screaming and, it, and we couldn't even do mediation. It had to be a litigated divorce in a courtroom. I mean, two ex-lawyers getting divorced. You know. <laughs> yeah, tell him to start reading his tax return. <laughs> well, thank you, Katie. Thank you for fighting the good fight and doing what you're doing. Keep getting that message out, talking about all these issues. I know some people might think they're boring, but they are not boring because they could save your ass someday and you will be so happy that you listened to Katie about this. All right, my dear. Thank you. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.